This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello. Hi, everyone. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much for joining us. Um, my name is Rechna, and I uh, work at Haymarket Books. Um, I'm based in London, um, and I also run a publishing house called Hadro Press out of London. Um, I am incredibly excited to be here with you all, and what a privilege it is um, to be interviewing Muhammad today. Um, I have a couple of short announcements that I will get out of the way before we begin. Um, okay, so before we begin, all uh, socialism conference attendees are required to wear masks, fully covering the nose and mouth, um, while indoors in conference spaces, including hallways and meeting rooms, uh, speakers from the front of sessions, um, speakers from the front of sessions uh, remove their masks in order to deliver presentations. Um, audience members are still required to wear masks even while asking questions or making comments. Um, also, please don't be. Um, annoyed or alarmed uh, if people are talking quietly to each other during the session, um, as this is most likely someone translating the talk for attendees. Um, I will just say a quick um, thing about the format uh, of this discussion. Um, so, Mohammed and I are going to chat for a little bit, um, and then we'll be taking questions uh, and comments from the audience. So, we're going to chat for about 40 minutes, and then we'll take um, 40, 45 minutes um, questions from the audience. Um, at that point, please raise your hand if you have a question um, or a comment. We request that you keep these to under three minutes, as we'd like to hear from as many comrades as possible. Um, we uh, also encourage people to make um, comments and ask questions that the whole room can engage with, um, rather than just for Muhammad. Um, so without further delay, uh, I'd now love to introduce Muhammad. Um, Muhammad Al-Kurd is an internationally touring and award-winning writer from Jerusalem occupied Palestine. His work has been featured in numerous international outlets and he is currently the Palestine correspondent for the nation. Rivka, his debut collection of poetry, was published by Haymarket Books 
Um, I would highly recommend that you all buy a copy. It's a beautiful collection. You can um, get a copy just down the corridor from our bookshop. Um, okay. Uh, thank you so much again, Muhammad. Um, I know you've had a hectic journey, um, and we're really grateful that you were able to make it. Okay, so let's get to it. Um, I think I want to begin uh, on the theme of um, the brutality. Um, so in your poem, Rivka, which is uh, one of the poems in your collection, also called Rivka, you write, the morning of a red-skied May 1948 could have been today. In your final poem of the collection, uh, you write that Nakba asserts Sheikh Jarrah is not an exception to the rule. Um, I wondered if you could say a bit about the ongoing uh, nature of the Nakba, um, how the forcible expulsion of Palestinians from uh, your neighborhood in Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah, uh, is a continuation of the Nakba, um, what tactics Israel continues to plot to employ in its colonization of Palestine, and in particular, um, how Israel deliberately fragments Palestinians in a social, economic, geographic sense, um, and whether there's been any kind of shift in that in those tactics in the last few years. Um, hello, everyone. Thanks. That was like, probably what's up. <laughs> That's good. Those were like 10,000 questions. Okay. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you, everybody, for coming today. I appreciate it. I don't take it for granted. It's really nice to see so many faces here today. Um, it's not often that I get to speak to an audience as diverse as mostly either Palestinians or guilty white people. Excited to be here. Thanks so much for the coffee. <laughs> I will be seeing what Starbucks though. Um, so the idea of cyclicality in, in the book is reoccurring because cyclicality of the occupation is reoccurring um, in general, right? Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with my neighborhood Sheikh Zorah, but it has been like kind of a hot spot in the past year, really since 2009. Um, it's a place in which um, Israeli ethnic cleansing really comes out and becomes very, very explicit. Um, you have Israeli settler organizations, most of which recognized and um, started in the United States or in the UK, um, working to expel Palestinians from their homes by forging documents and by working um, in collaboration with the Israeli government, with the Israeli judiciary, which is already complicit which is a, a judiciary built by settlers and for settlers with the main purpose of uh, increasing settler population and decreasing Palestinian population. But when you look at um, the tactics in which this ethnic cleansing is employed, it's not so simple, it's not so, um, it's not so black and white. In my neighborhood, you have what the Israeli government calls a so-called real estate dispute. 
in which you have some organizations forging documents saying that you have to quote-unquote evict your house because their owners are settlers. But in other neighborhoods, you have other um, things going on. Let's, you know, if we if we take a car ride 10 minutes away from my house in Jerusalem and we go to another neighborhood called Silwan, you have about a thousand Palestinians that are threatened um, with home demolitions. Um, and when you look at it from surface level, you'll see that they are threatened with home demolition because they have built their homes without permits. And you, as an American, would think, well, you know, they should have they should have got a permit for their house. But if you look further into the matter, you would realize that the Israeli government gives no permits to Palestinians. In fact, about 94% of building permit applications submitted by Palestinian residents of Jerusalem are rejected by the Israeli government. To illustrate an even more stark image, Yonatan Youssef is the name of the councilman, the councilman responsible for except for um, approving or rejecting these permits. This is the same councilman who comes to our neighborhood, chants Islamophobic um, and racist slurs with his megaphone. This is the same councilman that comes to our neighborhood and um, spray paints over our graffiti, right? When we talk about a system that is complicit, we mean very, very complicit. If you take a two-hour car ride from my home in Jerusalem, you go to the South Hebron Hills in the occupied West Bank, you have about eight villages called the Masafir Yatta. Um, these are remote villages. Its um, residents are all Bedouin Palestinians or cave-dwelling Palestinians. And if you read Israeli headlines or if you read the Washington Post, you would see that these people are being expelled from their homes for living in a firing zone, right? But what these headlines don't tell you is that these firing zones were established explicitly to expel them out of their homes. In fact, in the 80s and 1986, um, the Israeli government decided to create these firing zones in the West Bank for the sole purpose of the expelling the Arab residents. And then we have documents um, leaked from the Israeli state archives that um, confirm this. Again, to paint a better picture for you guys, the judge at the Israeli Supreme Court of Justice, the so-called Court of Justice, um, who is ruling on whether these Palestinian Bedouins get to continue living in their homes or not, is himself a settler in the West Bank. Um, just to tell you who gets to make the decisions, who gets to make the rules. Um, and these are some of the bigger issues we all hear about in the news, or those of us in progressive circles get to experience from our Palestinian friends, or from our progressive friends, or from like progressive news sources. Um, but there are even more absurd, stark ways in, in which, uh, strange ways in which the Israeli occupation manifests itself. For example, today, it was just announced that any foreigner, or anybody, it doesn't, anybody that doesn't hold a Palestinian ID, who comes to the West Bank and happens to fall in love with a Palestinian, must declare this to the Israeli Ministry of Interior within 30 days. <laughs> yeah. Is that weird? Yeah. <laughs> I found this one. Um, um, another another thing, uh, I was just in Masafriyata in the South Hebron Hills about two weeks ago, and I was speaking to the people there um, threatened with expulsion, and they told me that their ropes were going missing. 
And it turns out that Israeli settlers have been kidnapping goats and marrying them off to this other brand, this other species of goat, so that the indigenous goat of Palestine can go extinct. So there are, you know, this is bizarre and kind of comical, but there are a million and one ways in which the Israeli occupation manifests itself, and they have thought about everything. So when we talk about Palestine, when we talk about apartheid, when we talk about settler colonialism, when we talk about Palestinian liberation, it's very, very important to kind of dive in to the details and dive into those stories because at every place there is a different way in which ethnic cleansing is taking place, and each way is very, very important to talk about. No place is more important than the other, um, and I think it's it's not by mistake, not by coincidence. It's in fact by design um, that there's these many, many tactics of colonization that exist in Palestine. It's meant to be exhausting, it's meant to be too complicated, but there are so many of us, and uh, so many of us who are willing to talk about it. Here's your mic. Thank you, Mohammed. When you were talking about the goats, um, it reminded me of that movie. Have you watched it? The one, I think it's the one to dating yeah. about the cows. Um, so it was during the first Intifada um, in a Palestinian village. They were hiding these eighteen cows, and the and then like Israeli police were chasing these eighteen cows because they didn't want to take like milk and all of this from Israel. And so it's this ridiculous story. The state chasing these eggs and cows and people hiding them in bathrooms. <laughs> um, which leads me to my next question, um, closely related to the previous one. I wanted um, to ask whether you could um, say a little bit about historical and contemporary Palestinian resistance um, to this colonization. And in particular, I wondered if you could think about resistance within Palestine um, but also the Palestinian liberation movement's approach to the international community. Um, I think what I'm trying to get at um, with this question, which I think is one that um, the left more broadly needs to grapple with as well, is what lessons do we learn from the past and what do we have to build anew? Thank you. That's, um, that's an excellent question. I think the Let's start with the bottom line. I think uh, a harsh truth that doesn't isn't fully a fact in the United States, that isn't fully like obvious in the United States, is that Palestinians have every right to resist in whatever way. Oh, okay. Well, great seer on the right side of history. Um, yeah, so like historically we've been we've been doing all kinds of uh, creative things to resist the occupiers. I want to speak briefly about um, plane hijackings. Actually, it's, it's one of those things. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I recently met this wonderful playwright. Her name is Raina Taha. She's an amazing actress and playwright, and uh, she's written a play called Ali. Where can I find someone like you, Ali? And Ali is her father, Ali Taha, uh, a Palestinian man who hijacked a plane, an Israeli plane, in 1972 and took hostages, um, didn't hurt anyone, 
and uh, communicated with the Israeli government and said to them, you know, you should free a hundred political prisoners. And if you're able and willing to free a hundred political prisoners, then I am going to give up this plane. And the Israeli government just fooled him and tricked him into thinking that they did indeed free a hundred political prisoners. Um, and he was celebrating inside the plane. And as soon as he got out, he was shot and killed. Um, when I talk to her about this and about plane hijackings, you know, we hear about, especially in American and Western pop culture, we, we hear about plane hijackings. But when I talked to her about it, she said to me that it was uh, their media strategy. It was the Palestinian people media strategy. Um, at the time, no one would listen to the Palestinians. We did not have a place at the table the way we do today. Um, and we got the world's attention by taking planes hostage. Um, this brings me to think about how um, much of an advantage today we have as Palestinians. Back in the day, we had to literally kidnap planes from the air to give the world to pay attention to us. Today, it's not so hard. Um, and I think about our role here as Palestinians, as allies of Palestinians, as people in the diaspora who can go down to New York, uh, to Manhattan, and protest in front of the Israeli embassy without um, risking getting shot in the head, who can post on social media or write petitions or call their representatives and protest Israeli settler colonialism without risking being, in, being put in jail. Um, this is really an, uh, an advantage that we tend to uh, forget about as, as a Palestinian people because of that fragmentation that we have been put through. And when I talk about fragmentation, I mean it in the literal sense. Um, I live in Jerusalem, and a friend of mine who lives in Haifa, measly two hours away from my home, lives in an incredibly different reality, let alone a friend of mine who was born and raised in Michigan. Um, and it's, it's very important. It's, it's appearing after last year's unity uprising. It's becoming more and more apparent that we need to build connections between the diaspora and between Palestinians on the ground, because that's the only way we could move forward. There is so much power on this neglected front that is the Palestinian diaspora that we must pay attention to. Um, I want to say also about Palestinian liberation, I'm sorry, about Palestinian resistance. One aspect of Palestinian uh, resistance that tends to be unique is our resistance to prisons. Um, when a Palestinian is condemned to go to prison, um, be it on administrative detention, be it for throwing rocks, being for, for organizing an operation of resistance, be it for writing a poem on Facebook and being accused of incitement, we throw them weddings. We celebrate them as they go into prison. We sing songs for them. We have days of the year for our prisoners. We have their pictures on posters. I kind of see this also in the black community here where they'll print pictures of prisoners on, on t-shirts. Um, but we, we have them, we have, we plastered the pictures all over town and, and we call them heroes, we don't call them prisoners. And once they're, um, and once they're released, we celebrate them. Um, and this is a kind of just abolitionist sentiment that is present within Palestinian society. Now, obviously, I don't want to romanticize too much because we're still a society and we still have our flaws and we still have our downfalls and we still have the ways in which we punish one another. But I think uniquely, the Palestinian people reject prisons through and through. I grew up as a child in Palestine, 
hating the police and hating prisons and thinking everybody everywhere did. And then I went to Brussels and people were like, it's true, I went to Brussels and the first place I've ever been to outside of Palestine was Brussels to speak at the UN, I don't know why. Uh, at, the EU, at the EU. But yeah, people were like fond of the police for some reason. They're off their rent or something. But yeah, Palestinian Palestinian society as an abolitionist, as an abolitionist society is really a, a, an anthropological topic that could be delved into a little bit more. And again, I'm not romanticizing anything here, but I do think there is some kind of intrinsic, unique value. Thank you. Um, Mohammed, I would really love to hear your thoughts on the role of memory um, in uh, in this resistance and why in the kind of in the context of uh, in the settler colonial context uh, of brutal erasure and renaming uh, why is memory and oral history so important um, that's a, that's a difficult question let's try to tackle it from like a from a tangible let's use a tangible example um, last year, there was an Israeli filmmaker who decided to put on a white cape and make a documentary about Tamtura. Tamtura is a Palestinian village, a village that has been that was depopulated in 1948. Um, most of its residents were massacred, mainly the men and young young men, um, who were massacred and thrown into these big um, old mass graves in the in the ground. Um, and he's been, you know, receiving critical acclaim across the world. And I think it's a good, it's good that this is like, uh, this massacre is getting a lot of publicity. But I know about Tantura my whole life. There's a fucking novel called the Tanturia that we learned in school about Tantura. Um, but as soon as an Israeli person decided to acknowledge it, then it became this big epiphany, this big revelation. And it's and this manifests itself not only through the massacres, and not only because of the Israelis, it's literally the license of anybody that's not Palestinian, um, the authority of anybody that's not Palestinian. For example, Palestinians for decades have been marching and saying that this is apartheid, this is settler colonialism, and no one no one listens. And as soon as big human rights organizations or Israeli human rights organizations acknowledge it, then it's in the headlines. And there's a big problem here in which we are told constantly we are not allowed to narrate the bruises on our bodies, despite us feeling them and seeing them and understanding where they come from and understanding how they feel. Um, I have no problem, obviously, with Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, or even Betsela. Um, no major problems, and I think it's good that they're making these reports, but so much of the analysis gets lost in translation when Palestinians are not allowed to narrate it. But we know about apartheid just like we know about Tantura because our grandmothers and grandfathers who witnessed it made sure to carry it on and pass it on to us. And despite, you know, us not having much of a place in, in in the history books, in authoring the history books, or, or or in television punditry, or in political analysis, this kind of 
oral um, history um, in this kind of narrativizing that is very, very embedded in our culture has allowed us as a people to be very, very politically conscious. Um, I hope that answered your question. Definitely. Thank you, Um So, uh, shifting a little um, to another subject, at the beginning of your poem, 1948-1988, you quote a few lines um, from Egyptian poet Amal Dunkel, um, do not reconcile even if they gift you gold, if I were to gaze out your eyes and place gems uh, in their place, would you still see? I'd really like to hear um, what these lines mean to you, uh, and in particular, um, if you could say a bit about shifts in the region, um, the decline of pan-Arabism, uh, how this has impacted Palestine, and what a response to that, what a regional response to that might look like. Um, so the poem I quote in the in that in that book in the page by Amandul Kol is a very iconic Arabic poem called Latusar. Um, and it, surprisingly, it was not written about the Israeli occupation. It was written about tyranny in the Arab world. But it works very well for our context. And, you know, what does it mean to say do not reconcile, right? Um, we are a people um, who are accused of hatred, who are accused of bigotry, even our chance for our freedom are accused, are accused of being chants for genocide, right? We, we have a beautiful, beautiful saying um, that we say, we say, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, meaning every inch of Palestine that has been colonized will one day be liberated. And that saying caused people like Mark Lamont Hill to lose their jobs at CNN, caused me to be in the front page of the Phoenix Times for some reason. Um, <laughs> um, and I find it very amusing and quite unbelievable that while we are um, while, while we are killed in the streets, while our children are imprisoned or killed or bombed, while our houses are demolished or taken over, where our lands are swallowed, we are constantly asked, but what happens to the settlers? Um, so not only are we expected uh, to live under the excruciating circumstances of siege and occupation and colonization, but on top of this, we're, we're expected to pull up some PowerPoint and explain all of the reasons why we want to live in peace with settlers. And people do not ever take into consideration that any one of you in the audience, should you be met with the circumstances we're met with, should some stranger come to your house and throw you out of it and tear gas your grandmother and beat up your dad and imprison your mom, you would not want to live with them. You know what I mean? Um, so it's... Uh, in the in the context of the continuing normalization normalization deals in the Arab world, where um, Arab regimes are normalizing ties with Israel, making peace deals with Israel, or continuing to work with Israel on striking economic economic deals with Israel, um, 
Palestinians are portrayed in mainstream media as these peace-hating people, but we're not. We're not peace-hating people. We just, I just don't want to live in peace with somebody who's abused me. Um, and just because I'm on the topic of normalization and the Arab world, I think yeah, Saudi Arabia or or the United Arab Emirates or um, Morocco uh, are just bad actors, regardless of whether or not they normalize ties with Israel. They are all involved in their own set of occupation, in their own set of genocide. We, we look at Yemen and we understand what Saudi Arabia and what the UAE is doing in Yemen. We look at Western Sahara and we see what Morocco is doing over there. Um, so uh, the normalization does not mean anything more than just an economic deal, to be honest, than just a malicious alliance in our region. And it's very important that this is the analysis that we export into the world because it's not, it's not that uh, these uh, countries have had sour relations with Israel and now they are just making it up. No, these countries have had great relations with Israel under the table for decades and decades, and just today they are coming out with it. Um, so staying on the theme of internationalism. Um, there were a few lines in your poem, Small Talk, that really stuck with me. Um, and I, I believe this poem is describing your encounter with someone who works uh, for G4S, which is a security contractor complicit in Israel's mass incarceration. Um, and the lines are as follows. Uh, but what war could we wage when the only wage we know is minimal? What war could she wage when choice has left the equation? These are really powerful lines, um, and it makes me think what possibilities are open to us um, when racial capitalism divides us so aggressively. Um, how do we respond to this broader deliberate fragmentation um, on a global scale and forge um, interna the internationalist solidarities that we need um, to build any kind of serious global left movement? Sorry, that's a really big question. Yeah. Um, I don't think I can save the left. <laughs> big question. I don't think I can solve capitalism. Um, so that story in the poem, I used to work at a museum when I was young, when I was in, I'm so young, when I was younger. Um, uh, and the security lady at the museum used to work for, G, for G4S, which again, for those of you who don't know, is responsible or is complicit in Israeli mass incarceration and in equipping um, Israeli security checkpoints, you know, what we call military barriers, just like, you know, a bad actor in this equation. But this was a museum in Atlanta, and this lady probably got paid like $8 an hour, and she probably never heard of Palestine in her life. And when I saw G4S on her badge, I was very upset. And I was like, hey, do you know that? Blah, blah, blah. She was like, no, I don't. What is Palestine? Um, and then it became, it was like one of those lessons that in which I learned that class plays a huge role in this. Um, and how we as people, as marginalized people, are often um, utilized um, to serve the purposes of the occupation or to serve the purposes of capitalist corporations. Um, she had 
Allah, you know, this is like a topic for debate. We can go back and forth on this, but ultimately she had no option, it, it appears, but to work for G4S. And my anger um, at her could be interpreted as misdirected, or I, years later, could say like my anger at her is misdirected. Um, so I wrote that poem as kind of an invitation to think for ourselves as to how we can um, criticize one another for participating in capitalist economies or participating in occupation or participating in in American empire activities um, without really assassinating one another. Um, those of us who are, you know, poor, those of us who don't have really a choice. Um, this is my answer. Does it solve the American left? No. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Muhammad. Okay, my final question. Um, so this is a question that I also asked Diara Hawari um, in an interview for Rampant, uh, and it's a question inspired by an article that um, Sophia Azeb wrote on Palestine and futurity. Um, what does it mean to be Palestinian? What will Palestinianness be when Palestine is free? And why is it actually important to think about this question um, for the liberation struggle? Um, I think I think that's a really good question. I think I have a very straightforward way of answering it. Um, yani, there's a lot that could be said about Palestinian identity. There's a lot that could be said about trying and attempting to make the American people or people in the Western world um, forcing them or persuading them to fall in love with the Palestinian identity. But I personally don't think that's my fight. There are so many Palestinians that I find obnoxious. The reason, the reason why I believe in the Palestinian struggle is because it's a just struggle. It's because no one should be kept in a cage. No one You know, no one should be living in an open-air prison. No one should be stripped of their fundamental rights. It's not because we carry olive oil everywhere we go. It's not because we're, it's not because it's not because we're good at embroidery. It's it's because everybody should be free. No one should be colonized. So here are my fundamentals for Palestinian liberation. Um, all prisoners should be freed. Um, all prisons should be dismantled. All the land and all of the land resources should be handed back to their rightful owners. All refugees must be brought back home. And I should take over Netanyahu's house. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.